of Leviticus is where we're studying. If you need to look at a church Bible, you'll find it on page 102. 102. We're studying together in, well, during the summer holidays really, this book of Leviticus, or at least part of it. We're looking into it together as part of our studies on Sunday morning, and for some reason... This isn't working, Richard. Uh, that'll come up in a, in a minute. Oh, series on Leviticus. It's, uh, as you will uh, detect from its early position in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it is a, a book that belongs to uh, a very old time. Ah, oh, there we are. Old, uh, an old time from the time of Moses. And we've already spent a couple of weeks on this, so I'm not going to go into all the background of that. But just to say that, do you remember that the whole book starts with this idea that God is calling out. He calls out of this, uh, this tabernacle structure that we heard about, and he calls out to Moses to tell the Israelites something really important. To tell them, actually, that they can come near to him. Because you remember, the context is that, that this tabernacle structure was made and the glory of God filled it and nobody could get in it because it was so amazing. And then God speaks to Moses and he says, tell the Israelites, they are actually invited. There's this invitation, they can come near. It's an invitation to draw near to God, which is an amazing thing when you think about it. It may seem amazing to us, but you think of those Israelites, what they had seen of the power and glory and the holiness and the kind of fiery nature and the earthquake kind of filled uh, atmosphere that was around God when the law was given. Then you can see how amazing it must have been to be invited. But it's an invitation that comes from God himself. It comes on his terms. It's something we have to listen to. Uh, Moses, uh, God tells Moses to tell the Israelites there's something they need to hear. They need to take it on board. We have to take it on board for ourselves. So it's amazing. Perhaps we don't see God. Some of us maybe do, but most of us perhaps don't see God as this fiery, earthquake-surrounded, awesome, holy um, kind of unapproachable God that the Israelites had experienced at that time. But still it's an amazing thing that we, people like us, can draw near. We're invited to come near to this holy God. Even though he's holy, he's different. That's putting it mildly, isn't it? He's awesomely different. He's powerful. At times he's confusing. I've just uh, started reading a book uh, called The The God I Don't Understand by Chris Wright. It's a very interesting little book about some of these aspects of God's nature that that we find a bit confusing. And uh, you'll hear more about the coin group later on, which is an opportunity to talk through some of those things together. But we're still invited. Now, here's the question. Do you want to draw near to God? Does that invitation make you think, whoa, that's amazing? I do. I, mean, I don't know how aware you are, but many of us are believers, and so, yeah, you say, well, of course I want to draw near to God. But what about our friends, our, our family, those outside of our, our immediate group, those in the culture? Is there that desire to draw near to God? I think there is. I think there is a kind of innate desire to draw near. We'll probably see this weekend, it's on the news, we'll see people... Uh, kind of sensitive to what's happening 
what happened to those, uh, that, that group of people in Afghanistan, and more about that later. Well, it's kind of eliciting a response to, to do something, to, to somehow draw a little bit near. Do you want to draw near? Well, am I prepared to come on God's terms? The invitation is from him. If you get an invitation from me um, to come to my party, if I, I don't have many parties, so that would be a miracle in itself. If I'm going to have a party and I say black tie only or turn up at, you know, three o'clock, uh, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, you, you don't come in fancy dress at half past eight. You might come at half past eight. I sometimes go very late to parties, but that's also another story. You, you come according to the invitation, The invitation is from God. We draw near on his terms. Now, uh, we thought about that in the first week. And then last week, we had a closer look as Lou led us through this chapter one. We had a look at the way you could come. How it was that you came as an Israelite. And we thought about what was called the burnt offering. It's called ola in Hebrew, a Hebrew word. It means rising up. It talks about the, 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 an animal is sacrificed and the smell of the sacrifice rises up to God. Basically, as we heard last week, a life was given in the place of the Israelite. If I was an Israelite, that life was given for me. It was a, a sheep or a calf or even a pigeon. It was something that, that, that was mine, but it was given, its life was given for me. And remember we thought about that long word, atonement. That way of being at one, at one meant at one with God, being back in relationship with God. So we can be friends again. The Israelite, in, in a way, could know that, that being at one with God. And as we saw, something had to pay so that sin could be dealt with. So it would be covered. That's also the word in their atonement, this idea of covering. And it pointed to a time when someone would come, when Jesus came. Uh, uh, and as he himself said, remember he said, I've come to give my life as a ransom. And you know, that idea of ransom is involved in the word atonement in the Hebrew. One life being paid, the price uh, for our freedom, our salvation, our access to God. It's strange for us, uh, as uh, Lou pointed out last, last week, but we, we don't live in this world, we, of this Old Testament world, but the New Testament writers came from that. And that's why it's good for us to pop into the Old Testament, even Leviticus, because we get hold of the Bible's unfolding message and we grab the meaning for ourselves. Now, here's another question. Have I grabbed the meaning? Have you? Have you really got hold of it yet? Have we seen that what keeps us away from God is serious, that things that are wrong, sin, our rebellion in our life, needs to be sorted out. And that there's a way for that to happen. There's a way that we can be friends with God again. But we need to take that way. Just as last week we heard the Israelite uh, had to put his hand on the, the animal to identify with it. It had to be, literally, had to say, well, that sacrifice is for me. And uh, as individuals, as we see what God has done, as we see what Jesus has done, so we individually apply that. Now let's read about the next offering. It's in chapter 2. It's a very different offering. Actually, if you, those of you who were here last week or know about chapter 1, I'd like you, as we read this through, to spot the difference. Okay? Think back to last week. And as we read chapter 2, think about how it's different. 
Here we go then, verse 1. When someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be a fine flour. He is to pour oil on it, put incense on it, and take it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest shall take a handful of the fine flour and oil, together with all the uh, incense, and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. If you bring a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to consist of fine flour, cakes made without yeast and mixed with oil, or wafers made without yeast and spread with oil. If your grain offering is prepared on a griddle, it is to be made of fine flour, mixed with oil and without yeast. Crumble it and pour oil on it. It's a grain offering. If your grain offering is cooked in a pan, it's to be made of fine flour and oil. Bring the grain offering made of these things to the Lord. Present it to the priest who shall take it to the altar. He shall take out the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar as an offering made by fire an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the offerings made to the Lord by fire. Every grain offering you bring to the Lord must be made without yeast, for you're not to burn any yeast or honey in an offering made to the Lord by fire. You may bring them to the Lord as an offering of the first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. And it talks about if you bring a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, offer crushed heads of new grain roasted in the fire. Put oil and incense on it. It's a grain offering. The priest shall burn the memorial portion of the crushed grain and the oil together with all the incense as an offering made to the Lord by fire. Right, what's the difference? Anyone spot the difference? Yes, Margaret? <laughs> it smells a whole lot better. And why did it smell better? Yeah, why, why did it, anyone else? What else was different about it? What's different? Yes. No blood, yeah. We haven't got an animal kind of bleeding to death on the floor with this offering. We haven't got all the kind of blood and guts. We haven't got what's called the entrails being washed off by the person. There's, no, there's, no, there's nothing like that going on. No animal is being killed in this particular offering. But there is something in common. What isn't different? Anyone notice that? Well, it's that phrase. It's a pleasant aroma, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, a pleasing aroma. The idea is still that this is for God. It has the idea of God being pleased, of of God kind of smiling on his people, but it's not through the sacrifice of a lamb, it's through something else. It's an offering, not a sacrifice. There's a Hebrew word here, it's called minha. It's uh, what the Jews, when they talk about the grain offering, that's what they called it. Um, it actually means uh, gift. It's the idea of a gift. That word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, and it's used in some interesting places. Sometimes it's used, the same word is used, of a tribute that you give to a king. Remember we were doing the story of David? Remember David had lots of victories over other countries, and, and the people that he conquered, and he kind of then l- looked after, <laughs> they gave him tribute, they gave him gifts. That's the same words that's used. 
It's about a, a tribute. It's also about recognizing, recognizing the worth, the value, or the importance of the person. We won't turn to it now, but do you remember, some of you will know the story of Saul in the Old Testament. He was the first king of Israel. Uh, When he uh, became king, he went back to his hometown, uh, and you can read it in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 26, if you want to jot that down. Uh, and, And there's an interesting comment, because what's happening back in his hometown, people are giving him stuff. And it says there were, there were certain family, they were called uh, scoundrels or rascals in the, old te- in the old versions. And it says there, they wouldn't give him gifts. They wouldn't recognize him. They were insulting him. They would not recognize him as king. And the gifts they would not bring are, are minha. They're, 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 they're gifts that recognize something. Do you remember the story of Joseph and Jacob? Do you remember when, when Joseph, Jacob's son, is the prime minister in Egypt and, and Jacob, the old man, sends the, his sons down to Egypt with some, some, he sends gifts to recognize. He doesn't know Joseph is his son. He just knows that he's the boss of Egypt and he's going to recognize him. And so the gifts that he sent, they're, they're, they're minha, they're offerings, they're gifts. So it's a way of saying that you recognize God as your king. You're offering God something. If you're an Israelite, you're saying, yeah, I I, I know that I can come because of the sacrifice, but now I just want to give God something. It's a bit of grain and it's done in a certain way, and and that as we read. But it's saying, I'm giving tribute to my king. I'm bringing recognition because I know who he is and I'm thankful to him. Psalm 96, turn, if you can keep one page in Leviticus, one figure in Leviticus, and you want to, turn to page 602. This is, uh, again, uh, this is a psalm of worship and praise. Uh, and it, this picks up the idea. We see it in uh, verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe the Lord to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. This idea of acknowledging God. Bringing an offering. It's about being grateful to God. Being thankful for being looked after by him. So back in Leviticus, the Israelite knows he's been or she's been forgiven knows that the burnt offering has uh, has burnt up. Now, on top of that, they bring something else. Usually the the grain offering, this offering came after the burnt offering. It's a kind of, not exactly like seconds, but you know, it's like the kind of the bit that that came afterwards. Because they've got access, because they're forgiven, they just want to give God something to recognize him, to thank him, to respond to him. As an Israelite, you wanted just to show how much God loves you and how much you love God and how much you love him because he loves you. So that's what that's going on there. Do you notice how it's very much part of the whole of their lives? Everyday stuff is used. You could get it in your larder, most of it. I'm not sure about the incense, but it was mainly flour, oil, and salt. Part of it goes up in smoke. Another part of it is kept and given to the priests for their kind of um, their food. You're in a community. It involves the whole of your life. There's this blending of the spiritual and the practical. 
The priests have practical needs, and so you've set a bit of you set some of it aside for them to eat, for them to survive. It's all, as a phrase here, uh, it's repeated, it's all holy to the Lord. See, the bit that's holy to the Lord is not just the bit that's called the memorial portion that goes onto the fire, the altar, and is burnt up and smells good. The whole of it, the bit that goes to the priest, the bit that keeps the community going, the bit that blesses uh, everyone else, is also holy to the Lord. It's all part of it. You see, it's not just private. As the Israelite, it wasn't just about me. This, this, this stuff I bought was about my whole family. And it was also not just personal. It involved my whole community. Now, are there things that we can learn from this? Things about our response to God. It's not just private. We have to know God for ourselves individually. You can't come to know Jesus on the back of your grandparents or your parents or your children or your relatives. That's true. There needs to be that personal response. But, and it needs to be private. But it's not just that, is it? We need to make sure that we're honouring God in the whole of our lives. Including what we make available for the life of the whole church community. Tempting, perhaps, for, to say something about what we give to, to enable the staff of the church to do their job. Like, but I won't do that because I'm a bit personally involved in that. But, but all of that is, is part of the whole. The whole of our lives, the whole of our life together is part of God's concern. Now, what about, what's this got to do with us? Do we do this? Do we bake flour and oil and salt for God and bring it? Well, no, we don't do. Not even in our bring and share lunches, I I don't think. I've not seen anything like that on the table, though you never know. So what is it all about? How does it affect us? Well, again, if you want to keep a finger in uh, in Leviticus, turn to page 1218. This is right at the other end of the Bible in the New Testament. In a book called 1 Peter which actually we're going to be studying in um, the autumn. And we're going to uh, pick it up on page 1218 on on 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And Peter is writing to Christian believers in community, probably lots of little communities, and this is what he says to them. As you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Here's an interesting idea that we as Christian believers can offer spiritual sacrifices to God. So maybe there's some interesting stuff that connects with this offering here that we read of in the Old Testament. For example, look at what it says. You can read it on the screen in Hebrews chapter 13. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continue to offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices... God is pleased. What kind of sacrifices can we bring? This is to New Testament Christians. 
We could bring sacrifices that when we praise God with our lips, when our, our, what's in our heart overflows into praise, it's a sacrifice. It's like bringing an offering to God. When we confess his name, confessing his name to others. Have you ever noticed how sometimes hard it is to to actually mention Jesus in conversation. You know, we have great, great kind of relationships with people. We get to know people. We live missionally. But at some point, we need to mention his name. Because it's Jesus who's made the difference in our lives. When we do that, sometimes it's difficult. But do we do that as a sacrifice of praise? A sacrifice? Sharing? Witnessing? What about serving other people? Doing good? Do we do that? It's a sacrifice. Blessing others. And and it's like, you know, in the Old Testament it says, it's like a pleasant aroma going up to the Lord. In the New Testament it says, with such sacrifices, God is pleased. He smiles on that. He loves us to do those things out of our thankfulness to him. Well, look at this. It's another part of the New Testament. Romans 12 says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The whole of ourselves. Look at it in the message version. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, Take that and place it before God as an offering. That's a sacrifice we can make. Do we give ourselves to God? Just like that, everyday life. And there's another one in the New Testament, quite an unusual one in some ways. And it's special. But it might come to some of us. This is Paul in the Philippians writing, knowing that he, Paul is in jail at this point, the Apostle Paul who wrote this book, this letter, that we have a quote from. He's in jail. He knows he could go out and get executed by the Romans. And he says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. It's interesting how he involves the Philippians in that process, but that's another story. Or look at what he says when he, he, this is on his, almost certainly, the last letter Paul wrote before he was executed uh, under the Romans. He said, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. It might mean, for some of us, the sacrifice is to be willing to lay down our life for the Lord. Is that fanciful? You probably can't see that very well. That's a picture of Tom Little. Tom was somebody I met in Kabul a few years ago. He was one of the guys who was uh, ambushed and murdered this week. And uh, he, he, he was a guy who gave his whole life in Afghanistan as an eye doctor. And those words are, are true of him and those others. That sacrifice even of being willing to pour out our lives. And brothers and sisters, as Paul has often reminded us through release, you know, not just people that we know about on our news, but brothers and sisters across the world know the truth of that, just as the Apostle Paul did. So sacrifices we can bring. And you know what? That word in the Old Testament, minha, 
for offering. There's a version of the Old Testament that was translated into Greek a few hundred years before the New Testament. And the Greek word for minha, the Greek word for offering that is used, is the same word in the New Testament. Every time, all those examples I've given you, every time sacrifice is talked of as something that believers do as a response to the God who they love and the God who loves them, that's the word. The same as grain offering, that's the word that is used. So do we get it? Can we bring that kind of offering? When was the last time I did something? Or you did something? When you worshipped, or served, or blessed someone, or did good to someone, or confessed the name of Jesus to someone, or, or, or whatever it was. When was the last time we did that? Just because you love Jesus. For no other reason. Not because you have to, not because you know, all Christians have to worship, all Christians have to worship, uh, witness, you know, all Christians are supposed to go around doing God. No, when was the time we did it? Just because we love him. And we want to show him that love. And as we do that, from that kind of heart, you know, he's pleased. It's like a sweet-smelling aroma. It's like the smell of freshly baked cooking oil and incense and flour. How do you feel? Sometimes it happens to us as adults, whether we've got our own kids or not, but sometimes, you know, you, you might feel, and again, whether you're single or not, uh, single or married or whatever relationship, how do we feel when, when, when we receive just a completely spontaneous and unlooked-for expression of love? I mean, children do it, don't they? Um, one of the things, even even children that aren't our own, sometimes, you know, you will, well, if if you're visiting someone or you spend time. I remember sometimes when I travel overseas and I'd stay with families and and uh, you know go on picnics and trips with them and stuff like that. And they weren't my kids, but you know, at one point I'd be walking along and suddenly there'd be a, a little hand in in my hand, you know, and it's really touching. It's great, isn't it? They didn't want anything, there was no agenda, but for some reason they just did it. When was the last time we did something like that with God in mind? Now, it's half past. Shall we just go a little bit deeper for five minutes? Shall we get into this a bit more? We've got another few minutes. So uh, let's go a little bit deeper. Let's have a look at the ingredients. Let's look at the recipe and see whether there's some things we can learn. You know, it's interesting, some cultures really love food. Well, lots of cultures love food. Again, I was visiting, I'm thinking a lot about my old days with InterServe because of what's happened uh, the other day, so they're flooding back memories. But uh, I I was visiting Bangladesh once, and I I experienced what is an informal ritual in a a college where I was visiting, a kind of extension uh, college. And uh, one of my colleagues said, that we do this, there's a little ritual we have every day. Um, uh, someone cooks snacks, and Bengalis love food, and they love cooking great food. And most of the in- good Indian food in Britain really is, is Bangladeshi, but that's another story. And, um, and, and Bengalis said, what happens? Every day the same thing happens. Someone makes snacks, and everybody sits around eating the snacks, and then after a little while, they all take, kind of start taking the part, the part and discussing what's in it, you know, the recipe. And, oh, we should have had more of this or less of that or whatever. It was a daily ritual, and sure enough, <laughs> it happened in front of my eyes. Well, let's be a bit like Bengalis, and let's have a look into the recipe and into the, uh, uh, the makeup and see what we can get from it. We're going to go quite fast, because we've got about five minutes. What's the first thing? Fine flour. 
Now, if you were an Israelite, where would you get fine flour? You wouldn't get it in Waitrose or Iceland or the Halal shop, would you? You'd have to grind it yourself. And fine flour means flour that's been ground and ground and ground and ground until all the coarse bits, all the lumps, so it's completely, you know, pure. Fine flour. Nothing imperfect in it as, as far as possible. And I suppose we could say, well, as we serve, as we worship, as we offer ourselves, you know, those things that we've just been talking about, as we do good, then sin, the imperfections, the things that are wrong, are stuff we need to get out and get rid of. And that can be hard work. It can be like a lifetime of, of grinding fine flour sometimes. It's not easy. But it's important that we, we know that purity in our lives as we come and bring our offering of ourselves to God. What about oil? Oil that kind of bound the whole thing together, helped it to cohere. In the Old Testament, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember with the story of David? We, we had that story of David. Remember, David, right at the beginning, uh, was chosen to be king and was anointed with oil. Remember that story? It was the first one, so you could be forgiven if you've forgotten it. But anyway, that's what happened. And do you remember what the, the, the storyteller says immediately after that? It says, the Holy Spirit came upon David in power from that day onwards. So that's that expression. If you want to follow it up again, you can look it up in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2 to 6. We won't turn to it now because of time. But Zechariah has a vision and he sees the, the candlestick, which was like the seven arms thing that the Jews had, you know. And he saw it with oil in it. And the oil was coming from two olive, live olive trees. It was a vision, it was a dream, you know. Uh, so if you've seen Inception, you'll know why. I haven't seen it yet, but you know, that kind of thing, where reality doesn't quite look the same as normal in a dream. He sees this vision, and, and there's the candelabra there with oil in it, and it's coming from these two olive trees that are living and growing in the presence of God. And the Lord says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Oil, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We need God's spirit in our lives. We need purity, but we need power. We need the working of his spirit as we serve, as we witness, as we worship, as we offer sacrifices, as we come to lay down our lives, as Stephen found in, in, in the book of Acts. We need the Holy Spirit as we bring these offerings. What about incense? That's what made it smell good. If you look in Revelation chapter 5, right at the end of the Bible, there's a, there's a vision there of people around the throne of God, and they've got bowls of incense. And the writer says, the incense are the prayers of the saints. Prayers of the saints doesn't mean, you know, Saint Margaret or Saint, you know, famous people from history, but just any believer is a saint. So if you're called Margaret, you are Saint Margaret, Margaret. Uh, but, but if you're, you know, if you're an, any believer, you're, you're, you're set aside for God. It's the prayer of God's ordinary people, are like incense. Speaks of prayers. How can we bring anything to God at all without the sweet fragrant of prayer? He loves it. Do we realize that? So why don't we pray? Last one is salt. That's a reminder. It actually says in verse 12, it's a reminder of covenant. Traditionally in the Middle East, when people made a deal, uh, they would, each of them would eat a little bit of salt to signify it. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we read that the salt is a symbol of an eternal covenant. 
You see, to the Middle Eastern mind at the time, salt, you couldn't kind of get rid of it, really. You couldn't break it down. If you burnt it, it was still there in the ashes, salty as ever, if you wanted it. If you watered it down and the water evaporated, the salt was still there. You couldn't kind of get rid of it. It was kind of everlasting. It was an everlasting commodity in one form or another. And, and, and it's a reminder, a covenant of salt is an everlasting and eternal covenant. So as we come to God, we come knowing that his commitment to us is eternal in covenant. And there wasn't to be any honey and there wasn't to be any yeast. Why not? Well, both honey and yeast were kind of enhancers, aren't they? This is speculation. We, to be honest, we don't really know why not. But here's, a, here's one possibility. They're alive. They kind of cause fermentation. Honey or yeast adds a little bit extra, doesn't it? Uh, whatever they mean, they're symbols of wrong things. You see, there's a lesson for us too. We can't bring anything. We have to submit to God and his ways. Some things are out for us. And you'll know what some of those things are. Your conscience may be telling you about some of them. So there are some things that are not just not on, that aren't right for believers, for us as we bring our lives as offerings to God. We submit to God's way. We don't try and enhance it with an extra bit of honey or yeast because we think that's a smart idea. No, the worshipper comes God's way and his way alone. Now here's the question, how can we bring this kind of offering to God? You may be thinking, oh no, this is, I mean, I can't worship God that way. I can't be devout serving God that way. I can't confess Jesus' name. You know, how can I be like this? This is impossible for me. How can I make my life be like this kind of offering? Well, think about Jesus. Think about how in Jesus, what it says about Jesus In him, there was no sin. It says he's the son of God. He's tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Think about Jesus. His life was like pure, fine flour. Perfect in every way. Think about the oil of the spirit. Think about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, at the beginning of his ministry. In Hebrews, it says that at the end of his life, he gave through the eternal spirit, he offered himself to God. Think about his ministry. This is just one bit of it in Luke. Jesus is full of joy through the Holy Spirit, overflows. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit for the whole of his life, even before he was born. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, think about Jesus. He, he was, lived a life empowered constantly, totally, exclusively by the Holy Spirit. Think about incense and praying. Think about Jesus. Did Jesus pray much? His whole life was prayer. Every major decision he made. What was his last words on the cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit, he says. Who's he saying it to? God. His whole life is a life of prayer. Here's a a verse from Hebrews that tells us that. He offers prayers and petitions. Think about Jesus. Now here's the question. What if Jesus' life could be available for us? What if his life was for us as much as his death is for us?
Well, you know, it was. And we know that by his spirit, he lives in us. He told the disciples when he left that he would be with them by the Holy Spirit. So now we can work with the flow of what he's doing. As we seek to, do, to, to be like him, it's not something you know, we, we have to kind of just do and grind ourselves up to. His life is living in us. It says in the Bible that we're being changed into his likeness. So as we give our lives, we give them to him, with him. As we serve him, we serve with him. He works. It's not just about what I do or about what you do. Somebody, some people pray. Some in this church do. I, I, they've told me about it. Not bragging, but just in passing. Pray kind of day, prayer that says at the beginning of the day, Lord, what will we do today? What are we going to do today, Lord? That's the way. His life at work in us. His passion to make us like him, it's what he wants. We can go with that quite intentionally. So I've been accepted then. The lamb has made it possible for me to come into the presence of God. Here's the question, what now then? Like the Israelite worshipper, where do we go from here? Well, we can respond. We can bring an offering. Offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Offer our praise, offer our serving, offer our prayers. Offer our confessing of his name, even offering our lives if he, he calls us to do that on the altar. At those key decision points in the day. The point where you say, am I going to think that lustful thought or am I going to do what Jesus wants me to do? That point where you say, am I going to blow out the person that's really irritated me in the car or am I going to do what Jesus wants me to do? Am I going to hold on to that bitterness and that resentment or am I going to let it go because that's what Jesus wants me to do? All those decision points through that day, we, we, we offer those things to God on the altar as we bring offerings. Am I going to name the name of Jesus here if he gives me the opportunity or not? All of those things at those key decision points. Am I going to surf those sites or am I not going to surf those sites today? Key decision points. Bring an offering. Respond to God's love. Not because you have to, but because he's worth it. And whatever you think about yourself, he thinks that you're worth it. That's why he died for you. And you know, he's worth loving for that and everything else. I pray that we'll be people who, uh, not by bringing uh, cereal and, and oil and... Uh, incense, but people whose lives are like offerings to God this week for his glory. Amen. Sorry, it took longer than five minutes.